Let me begin, and I'll try to be as informal and I hope interesting and informative for you. But in speaking with law schools and people who want to make a career or life in the law, I often am reminded of the second and third paragraphs of <clears throat> Edward Margebank's magnificent magisterial, in fact, biography of Sir Edward Marshall Hall, who was a great British criminal defense barrister in perhaps the period of the late 19th century and first two decades of the 20th century. This is what he wrote about Edward Hall. Now, it is difficult for any man, however wise or eloquent, to speak for himself when fortune, reputation, happiness, life itself are in jeopardy and rest on the decision of strangers sworn before God to find an impartial verdict from the evidence brought before them. Hence has arisen the honorable and necessary profession of the advocate. It is indeed a high and responsible calling for into his keeping are entrusted the dearest interests of other men. His responsibility is wider in its scope than a physician's and more direct and individual than that of a statesman. He must be something of an actor, not indeed playing a well-learned part before painted scenery, but fighting real battles on other men's behalf in which at any moment surprise may render all rehearsal and preparation futile. The advocate then must have a quick mind, an understanding heart, and charm of personality. For he has often to understand another man's life story at a moment's notice and catch up overnight a client or witnesses lifelong experiences in another profession. Moreover, he must have the power of expressing himself clearly and attractively to simple people so that they will listen to him and understand him. He must then be histrionic, great-hearted, crafty, courageous, eloquent, quick-minded, and charming. These are the salient qualities that go into the making of a great advocate. In the nearly 50 years that I have practiced law, I have never read or had told me a better description of what an advocate does. Even though Marshall Hall was a criminal barrister, much of what is said there would also apply to any lawyer in litigation. And I commend it to you as the ideal of what an advocate has to strive for. What I wanted to do this evening is to discuss with you, as Sarah said, the McVeigh case, and I have a short 10-minute or 11-minute uh, disc here we'll show in a minute, which is composed of clippings, uh, video clips rather, from the BBC documentary, which was finally shown in this country. It came out in 2001. It was uh, shown around the world and then finally in the United States. It is, I think, the best documentary on the bombing, and it's called The Oklahoma Bomber. Uh, in it, I make certain comments which those of you that are in law school or practicing law 
know clearly I'm talking about client confidences. So you may wonder how I could have said that and how I can tell you some of the things tonight. The answer to that question is, without going into unnecessary detail, that there are sealed court orders, I believe three of them, in two different courts in which the judges determined that Mr. McVeigh had not only waived virtually everything on the attorney-client privilege, which is after all a rule of evidence, but more importantly for our purposes tonight, waived the protection of Rule 1.6 uh, which is the confidentiality and position on lawyers in the Code of Professional Responsibility. Now, the judges and the bar associations reached that conclusion not because Mr. McVeigh was executed, because the attorney-client privilege survives death. They reached that conclusion because, unknown to Mr. McVeigh's successor lawyers, he had engaged in at least 75 hours of on-the-record tape-recorded interviews with two reporters from Buffalo, New York, who wrote a book for which they received a fabulous advance called American Terrorist. It's the book that Mr. McVeigh would have written. When that book came out, uh, to my dismay, um, any chance that Mr. McVeigh might have had to escape the death penalty or obtain a new trial or anything of that type vanished. Why he did that, um, we can answer perhaps later on. But he did do it. And the issue was presented to the court in a setting where the court had to determine whether his actions had constituted that waiver. And without dissent, they concluded that it did. And I, I don't really see how they could have reached any other conclusion. Uh, contemporaneously with that, in order to give me an opportunity to answer Mr. McVeigh, Judge Mach released me from the gag rule, which was the rule that he had imposed before the trial started, that lawyers were not to talk to the media. So it's a very unusual set of circumstances that allows me to discuss some of these matters with you tonight. So without further ado, uh, I think I'll ask Sarah if... Um, her technical skills were what they were when she was my assistant. And uh, maybe we can probably turn off the lights, maybe, uh, since you will hear the actual bomb. The sound is muted, but you'll hear it. They generally need the second piece being undermined. You'll be advised of that. With regard to this proceeding, basically, there are four elements that I have to receive information regarding. down because it was the boy next door on trial for murder. I had a job to do. My job was to defend him, to represent him, knowing that I was defending a man who had told me he was guilty. Tim saw himself as a rescuer. He believed that he was preventing a greater harm, not a martyr a patriot, the type of man who would believe that 50 years from now his statue would be on the mall in Washington. 
daycare threat. Uh, we're not sure exactly how many. Uh, we've got the word that uh, uh, there might be a daycare center down involved in some skin, red hair, and blue eyes. She is in stable condition right now, but they need to take her to surgery. They don't know who she is. They don't know who her parents are. And this is my nephew lying here dead. Just been butchered, and he's dead lying on a piece of concrete. I just can't comprehend that the Tim that I know would be responsible for such a monstrous act. There was no building. Just rubble. And the building was gone. I didn't see any people up in the windows. There weren't any windows. The cars were still burning, and there was a lot of smoke. People were running and screaming. People were bleeding. I've never seen anything like that, and I hope I never see anything like that again. Sending in lawyers every day to talk to him. 
by going over his story repeatedly, he knew that he was not always telling it consistently, which would mean, he thought, truthfully, that I would begin to pick out the inconsistencies and realize he was lying to me. People of Oklahoma would have to wait two years before hearing Stephen Jones's defense of Timothy McVeigh. It seemed like every time I turned on TV, I saw Stephen Jones saying how innocent Tim was. And we all knew he wasn't innocent. I was so angry with Stephen Jones for taking the case for defending Timothy McVeigh. So my therapist gave me this doll. And the dolls say, see you in court. And when I would get really angry at Stephen Jones, I'd just tear him to pieces. That made me feel better. The trial of Timothy McVeigh began on the 24th of April, 1997. He was to plead not guilty. Seeing Tim in the courtroom, seeing Tim on TV, Reading about the demands that Tim makes, I think he thinks he's a celebrity. When McVeigh's sentence is announced, crowds gather around the television crew getting word from the two-way radio, relaying the information directly to Tom Brokaw. The jury recommends, by unanimous vote, that the following sentence be imposed. The defendant, Timothy McVeigh, will be sentenced to death. And so three months after it begins, one of the biggest trials in U.S. history goes down as a model for the legal system, described by observers as justice at its best. This is the CBS Evening News. With Dan Rather reporting tonight from Denver. Good evening. The jury that convicted Tim McVeigh of the deadliest act of terror on U.S. soil has decided his punishment. Acting as what the judge called the conscience of the nation, the jury recommended that McVeigh be put to death for bombing the federal building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 of his fellow Americans. It was the decision many in Oklahoma were waiting for and, frankly, hoping for. The Oklahoma governor called it, and I quote, right and proper. Our coverage begins here in Denver with CBS News correspondent Scott Pelley at the U.S. Courthouse. Scott. And Tim McVeigh was escorted out of the courtroom by four federal marshals. As he rose after the verdict, he turned and looked at his parents and mouthed the words, it's all right. The sense here at the courthouse among the lawyers, the victims of the bomb, and the families is one of exhaustion. Just moments ago, the lawyers spoke about the verdict. This is not a day of great joy for the prosecution team. We're pleased that the system works and that justice prevails. But the verdict doesn't diminish the great sadness that occurred in Oklahoma City two years ago. Our only hope is that the verdict will go some way to preventing such a terrible, drastic crime from ever occurring again. Thank you. The jury has spoken, and their verdict is entitled to respect, and all Americans should accord it that respect until such time, if ever, 
it is overturned by court of competent jurisdiction. We ask that the barriers and intolerance which have divided us may crumble, that suspicions disappear, and that hatreds cease, and that our divisions and intolerance being healed, we may live together in justice and peace. God save the United States of America. God save this honorable court. Mrs. Schrag mentioned to you that I had worked for Richard Nixon before he became president, which is true. Um, after he left the vice presidency, he moved to California, became the Republican nominee for governor in 1962, and was defeated by Pat Brown. After his defeat, believing perhaps that his political career was over, he was um, invited to join a, a law firm at uh, 20 Broad Street, uh, same building as the Stock Exchange. It's an old but small firm founded during the Civil War. Uh, they changed the name of the firm and he moved there in October of 1963, shortly before the president was murdered in Dallas. I joined him in January of 1964 I had met him a couple of times on the campaign trail, but we really didn't know each other. But he had read something that I had written, which intrigued him. And I, I learned a lot about Mr. Nixon and his personality and the method in which I was hired. He reached out and I came home one day from law school. Uh, final examinations were over and there was a letter for me from Nixon, Mudge, Rose, Guthrie, and Alexander, which I recognized the name Nixon. And I opened it and it was uh, Dear Mr. Jones. And uh, said mutual friends had given me a copy of uh, this particular essay and that he was going to do some writing and had um, needed some assistance and uh, would I be interested in being his research assistant? And if so, I was to call him uh, or Rosemary Woods, his secretary, and uh, come to New York and he would arrange it. So I naturally called and spoke with Ms. Woods, and on that uh, Friday night I flew up to New York, which I'd never been in before, and I went to his law office at 10 o'clock Saturday morning and was interviewed for with him about two hours, and uh, at the end of it he said, well, I'll offer you employment, I'll pay you what we pay associates in the firm, which was $600 a month at that time. And I said, well, sir, I accept. Um, I'm very honored to be here. When would you like for me to start? And he said, right now. So I said, well, I probably have about 25 or $30 in my billfold and no change of clothes. And he said, well, I'll loan you some money. And I said, no, no, that, that's not necessary. I can, I can do that. But I do think I need to go back in Oklahoma in a week or two weeks and um, expand my wardrobe here, which I did. And I worked with him until the convention. Uh, my office most of the time was in a little room right next to his office 
uh, and uh, Rosemary Woods and Loie Gond and myself occupied that office, and Shelley Scarney, who later married Patrick Buchanan, who in a way was my successor, was the receptionist. And, and my most, uh, well, I have many endearing memories, but uh, perhaps certainly the one that uh, I clearly remember was one day uh, Rose and uh, Loie and Shelley had gone to lunch uh, together, which they rarely did, and I elected to stay in the office to answer the phone. Mr. Nixon was in his corner office with his feet propped up on the desk and and uh, reading something, and the telephone rang, and I answered it, and this elderly woman's voice, <clears throat> quite officious, said, uh, the director is calling for Mr. Nixon. And fortunately, I did not make the mistake of asking, who is the director? Uh, so I said, well, moment, please, and I went to Mr. Nixon's office door, and I said, sir, the director is on the phone to you. <laughs> he swung around, took his feet off the desk, picked up the phone back, and said, Edgar, how are you? So it was J. Edgar Hoover. So I shut the door, and I don't know what they talked about. <laughs> um, I learned the story of how Earl Warren became Chief Justice and how the Fifth Circuit was remade and how Mr. Nixon became the vice presidential nominee. And and uh, so I came back. I thought about staying in New York, but I came back to Oklahoma. Now, probably everyone here knows who Richard Nixon was. What you probably, none of you know, is who Mrs. S.F. Waltrip was or Molly Martin. Well, Mrs. S.F. Waltrip was the wife of my father's high school principal at John Reagan High School in Houston in the 20s. And Mrs. Waltrip and her son, Robert, uh, decided to open a funeral home. And they did, in their home on Heights Boulevard. And uh, when I was 19 years old, I went to work for them. Uh, the funeral home had opened in 1926, and even when I went there, it was the largest funeral home in Houston. We, we handled a thousand funerals a year. That's three or four a day. The garage, or garage bays, there were 12 of them, two deep. Hearses, family cars, flower cars, first call cars, limousines. Mrs. Uh, Mr. Uh, Waltrip, her son, was deceased then, so it was uh, managed by her grandson. Mrs. Waltrip was still alive and frail, but she had certain standards. I knew that the funeral home's first funeral was a stillborn child, and the funeral home still had the funeral record. And when the child's remains were entrusted to Heights, Mrs. Waltrip took the child upstairs and kept the watch all night for the family. And when I would be bustling around, or as we used to say, on the hop, I can remember funeral services where Mrs. Waltrip would come down with her cane. You could hear her coming because you could hear that cane, fear of God in us. And she would go out by the driveway at the chapel, and uh, Mr. Ward or Mr. Pearson or Mr. Estes would hold an umbrella over her head if it were raining. And as the funeral cortege moved out, Mrs. Waltrip would, with a white handkerchief in one hand, 
and she would wave, frail, 80-year-old woman, because she knew these people. Now, the reason that I tell you that story is because years later, in fact, last year, I received a letter from a judge, a district judge in Oklahoma City, and he wrote this very complimentary letter about me, and uh, I was surprised he put it in writing um, where I could keep it, but he did. And one of the things that he remarked about me was my good manners and how I stood when older people came and women and how I shook hands with them and even touched them. And he said, you, you must have had very nurturing parents. And I felt that I needed to inform him, so I wrote him back and said, yes, I did have very nurturing parents. I was an only child. But those qualities, although my mother always hoped I would have them, and she certainly taught them, I learned those when I was 19 years old at Ike's funeral. And that's what Mrs. Waltrip taught me, sensitivity. That, that death, sometimes escape from death, is determined by events quite mundane, out of the ordinary, and generally unforeseeable. But each death is important to that family. And the object of their service and their professionalism was to show that type of sensitivity, no matter who it was, whether it was a governor or a stillborn baby. And I tried to keep those manners all my life and to use them in the practice of law. The other woman is Molly Martin, who was my high school debate coach. What Molly taught me was mental discipline, preparation, finding the weakness in arguments, and how to think and speak on my feet. So the combination of what my debate coach taught me and what Mrs. Waltrip and her family taught me about human sensitivity and emotions and how transitory life can be made me and developed me as a lawyer. So I come before you here today, 75 years old. I, I know I don't look it, but you know. <laughs> um, with a six-way bypass and uh, a defibrillator. Um, and my journey on this earth is way more than half over. I am in the autumn of my life, but you, your journey has just started. Just started. So what I wanted to do today was to share with you some of my experiences, answer questions, perhaps give an error or two for your quiver when you practice law, a couple of things I've learned, and then talk about defending the most hated man in America, Tim McVeigh. I grew up in Texas. I worked for the Republican Party of Texas. I've been a partisan Republican um, all my life. I've been Republican state chairman and the Republican Party nominee for the United States Senate in 1990 and for Attorney General of the State. But I thought the Republican Party of Texas was a wee bit conservative for me. Uh, I generally cooked my meat before I ate it. <laughs> but I recognize that a lot of Republicans in Texas didn't, and they still don't. But north of Texas was Oklahoma, where I'd gone for high school tournaments and 
student council workshops during the summer at OU. Molly was Martin was from Oklahoma. And we used to go up there for these debate tournaments and I'd look around and I'd say, man, this is really a great place. And Oklahoma was brand new. I mean, at that time it had only been a state 50 years. One of the youngest states in the union. It was open. And nobody cared what your grandfather did because most people assumed he was either bankrupt or in prison or should have been. And that's why the family came to Oklahoma. I mean, Andrew Jackson moved all those Indian tribes out to Oklahoma to get rid of them out of Cherokee and Florida and the Carolinas. Or out of uh, the Florida, Georgia, the Georgias and Carolinas. So when Henry Bellman, who was a farmer, 42 years old, was elected the first Republican governor in 1962, I thought, you know, this, this might be a good place for a young man. Well, I had a friend who was also a friend of the governor-elect, and she wrote him a letter. And she told him I wanted to come to Oklahoma. Uh, I needed a job, and so he encouraged me to come up. And the first summer, I got a patronage job for an agency that I didn't even know existed. And it took me all over the state. And when I was in high school, my high school history teacher, Jim McBride, Jim McBumblebee, as he used to call him, had given me a copy of William Alexander Percy's autobiography, Lanterns on the Levee. And I had read that and I thought, what a wonderful life. I would like to live a life like Mr. Percy did in Greenville, Mississippi, graduate of Harvard Law School. And uh, as a poet, writer, plantation owner. So I reread the book and made a list of five or six criteria that I thought had to be in the town I was looking for. So I went all over the state. I found one, Enid, Oklahoma. It's the only town that met all five or six of them. So once I decided on Enid, I used to spend nights in the law library down in the bowels of the old law library looking at old Martindale Hubbles. You all probably don't know what that is, but that's a legal directory and you were starting about 1895 and you could trace lawyers and law firms and their evolution and who did what and who their clients were and how much they worked through that book. So I decided what law firm I wanted to pitch myself to, and they hired me. Well, along the way, I went to Washington for three or four years, so my re return to Oklahoma was delayed until 1969. I came to Oklahoma determined I was going to be elected to Congress. I had a political career in mind. And I chose a law firm that would ease that political career. It would just absolutely put me in the catbird seat, and all I had to wait for was for the incumbent to die. <laughs> and hopefully he had lived long enough that I could get myself in the district. Well, <clears throat> along the way, I used to go over to the courthouse and watch the afternoon arraignments. And we had a district attorney then that was obnoxious, verbally abusive, abrasive, and threatening. And that's when I learned that the court that's most frequently overturned is the United States Supreme Court. And that state judges, particularly those in criminal cases, regularly overrule the Supreme Court in almost every case. And I was offended by that. I mean, when I lived in Washington, I had breakfast. I lived across the street from the Supreme Court building. I had breakfast in the restaurant, cafeteria. So I told the judge, I'd like to be on the list to uh, take court appointments. 
Well, unlike most of the other lawyers that took these on for $100 a case, I began to fight. And not only that, began to win. Well, you can imagine that that made me very popular. Then about a year later came Kent State and the invasion of Cambodia that President Nixon ordered. And you remember the four students that were killed by the National Guardsmen at Kent State College, Kent State University. And colleges and university campuses across the country shut down. They went on strike. Fortunately, OU maintained open, uh, kept open, primarily because of our president, Herbert Holloman, who was a good president to be at that time for OU. The following day was ROTC drill day. Leadership training, I think they call it, but what that actually meant was you drilled with a 9.5 pound rifle on your shoulder at the field. And a young man named Keith Green had a homemade Viet Cong flag and he put it on a stick and to demonstrate against the National Guard, ROTC, he went among the soldiers or the cadets drilling, waving the flag. Well, there were a couple of law students there who knew that displaying a flag of disloyalty was a felony criminal offense, so they told the OU police. And they came out and arrested Green, put him in the back of a police car, take him downtown, and when they did that, about 900 students sat down and surrounded the police car and they couldn't move. Well, nobody had counted on that, so they called the governor, and the governor sent down the National Guard and the Highway Patrol and every game warden they could find, and one by one they moved these students out of the way, and they got Keith down to the courthouse where he was arraigned about 10 o'clock and released on bond. Then he tried to find a lawyer. He had money, came from good family. He went to 12 lawyers, and not a one of them would represent him. One of them finally said, well, <clears throat> I got a friend that's just back from Washington up in Enid, and he's probably looking for some clients. Why don't you call Stephen Jones? So he called me, and I agreed to see him. He rode up to Enid on the bus. He was legally blind. He had to hold a contract up like this. And I agreed to represent him, and I think I charged him $1,500, which is bad pay. Six weeks later, we had the preliminary hearing, and I told Mr. Carter, my boss, that I was going down to Norman for that red flag case. Now, in view of what happened, my understanding of red flag probably was different than Mr. Carter's. You know, boomer sooner, go big red. Well, when the preliminary hearing was over and the state had a hard time binding him over because they couldn't find a witness to prove it was a Viet Cong flag. As I walk out of the door, there's a young male reporter and young female reporter, and they said, uh, well, what are you going to do next? And being full of piss and vinegar and not really knowing what I was doing, I said, I'm going to take this case all the way to federal court. Now, throughout the state of Oklahoma, that got more attention than it deserved because the stories were about like this, except in Enid. On the following day, the Enid Daily Eagle, daily newspaper in the afternoon, above the fold, three columns wide, right-hand column, Enid lawyer to take Viet Cong case to federal court, with my name prominently mentioned. 
Mr. Carter said I had two choices. I could drop the case or leave the firm. And I said, well, I don't know how I can drop the case. He doesn't have a conflict. He has a defense, and I've spent the fee. So I guess I'll leave the firm. <laughs> well, that night, Mr. and Mrs. Carter uh, went out to Oakwood Country Club, where they caught unshirted hell for hiring some radical hippie Republican uh, that was defending this kid carrying the Vietcong flag. So the next day, Mr. Carter sent out roughly 5,000 notices. I went down to Dallas for the weekend and came back on Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock listening to the NBC radio network news, and I led the news. I like to turn my car over on old Highway 77. Hence, it was announced I was in private practice. And I haven't worked a day since then. In fact, and I love Mr. Carter and Ms. Carter, if I could get him to write another letter like that, I'd do it again tomorrow. But it just happened at a time that consciousness was rising. And the practice of law, the concept of dissent and First Amendment freedoms was changing. And through no effort or planning on my own, I just happened to be at the right place and was the beneficiary of it. So I opened my office, and I've worked for myself ever since. I have, uh, every lawyer that works for me is a woman. In fact, there are no men in my office except for me. And um, Sarah worked for me, and um, it's a wonderful life, let me tell you. Just great. I enjoy it every day, and I wouldn't exchange it for anything. Now, I had a lot of controversial cases, but I also had a lot of Fortune 500 cases, had a lot of civil work, but it was the criminal work, or sometimes the political work, that got the headlines. And then came April the 19th, 1995, when one of my associates came in and said, turn on the television, there's been an uh, explosion at the Murrah building. So I turned on the television. And Mike Roberts worked for me then. That was before I had all women. And he said, what do you think? You think it's a gas explosion? I said, no, because the building's not on fire. Only the cars are on fire. So it's not a gas explosion. And then in about 20 minutes, came on a report that it was the second anniversary of the assault on the Branch Davidians outside Waco. And um, one of the leaders of um, the Christian Identity Movement was scheduled to be executed that night in Arkansas. And it was the 10th anniversary of the raid on the Covenant of the Sword and the Ark. And then I thought, it's connected politically. I have to tell you that I was not surprised. I was shocked that it was Oklahoma City, but I knew because I represented farmers and people that work with their hands as well as insurance people and doctors and others, and I travel and I've been involved in politics, I knew that the country was in turmoil from roughly Indiana to the California line from the Dakotas to Mexico. Uh, all you had to do was read the newspaper and find out that so-and-so had broken into the National Guard armory and a bunch of weapons had been taken. Banker so-and-so had been shot in the back. Deputy Sheriff X, Y, and Z had been killed when they tried to foreclose. 
I knew that the farm revolt was, um, it was in revolt. The United States, in the United States, it's not really possible for federal law enforcement officers to shoot and kill by shooting in the back a 16-year-old in northern Idaho running towards his parents' home and then to kill his mother by a shotgun, a rifle, as she's holding the door open for her husband and, on the other hand, holding an 18-month-old baby. And when I read that, I thought, um, this is not going to stand. And then the 51 days of the Branch Davidian standoff, um, for millions of people in this country, they viewed that as the end time. So I knew that there was something seriously afoot. I had no idea it was Oklahoma City, no idea it would be the Murrah Building. When it happened, it killed 168 people, um, 19 of whom were children under the age of six, killed every child at the daycare center except four, killed eight federal law enforcement officers, and 40 or 50 people that just happened to be in the Social Security office injured 500, destroyed 200 buildings, the skyline of Oklahoma City changed, and there was about $800 million worth of uninsured property damage. Uh, perhaps more sobering than any of that, 30,000 Oklahomans sought psychological or mental therapeutic intervention as a result of the shock. In Oklahoma, it's our Pearl Harbor Day. Everyone remembers where they were on April the 19th. My wife, Cheryl, told me, uh, probably a couple of days later, she said, you know they're going to call you to represent him. That's when Mr. McVeigh had been arrested. And I said, no, they're not. They're not going to call me. I, I'm not on the CJA list. I'm not a public defender. They get some public defender from another state, and he'll represent him. And she said, no, Raider, her nickname for me. They're going to call you. Well, two weeks later, on the night of May the 5th, the Chief Judge of the United States District Court called me at home. And it was about 9.30 at night, and uh, I was alone, and uh, he said, well, I guess you know why I'm calling you. And I said, I have no idea why you're calling me. And he said, well, I'll come right to the point. We've had a meeting down here, judges, myself, and we have a question we want to ask you, and we want to know if asked, you will agree to represent an individual who has been charged or will be charged in the bombing. I said, well, <clears throat> I don't have a professional problem with it to understand what you're trying to do. But while I've been involved in controversial cases, I've never been involved in one in which I thought my wife or children or home or business associates or even a building where I practice law would be at risk. And I think, in fairness, I should consult with them. He said, how long will that take? And I said, uh, 24 hours. He said, call me tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. and tell me your answer. So Cheryl came home. She'd been out for the evening about 10 o'clock, which is about 30, 45 minutes later. And I asked her to come in the library. And I said, Raider, the call that you were afraid would come has come. 
And I remember she said, my God, what are you going to do? And I said, well, we're going to talk about it, husband and wife, children, think about it and decide. So we did. So Saturday night, I called him back. He answered the phone, and I said, in response to your question, I repeated the question back to him. I said, the answer is yes. He said, great. I appoint you to represent Tim McVeigh, be in my chambers at 1.30 Monday, ready to start work. And I said, well, Your Honor, uh, <clears throat> I would like to ask one question. How am I going to be paid? He said, well, we're appointing you under the Crimes and Offenses Act of 1790, which I later found out was about the 13th law that George Washington signed. <laughs> and uh, so he went through that, and I said, well, <clears throat> um, uh, that sounds all right, but um, to be frank with you, I've waited almost a year to get paid $50,000 for a capital case from the Tenth Circuit, and they don't return my phone calls, and they don't answer my mail. He said, I'll take care of that. Two days later, by express mail, check for $50,000. <laughs> um, I went down, um, was appointed. I went out to Mr. McVeigh, to the prison. The warden went with me and the marshal walked into a small room. And he stood and greeted me, and I said, Mr. McVeigh, my name is Stephen Jones. I'm a lawyer from Enid, Oklahoma. I've been appointed to represent you. And he said, I heard you were coming. So the next day, I came out for about 12 hours, and I listened to him. I'm sure that sometime during that day, I had lunch or went to the restroom or got a drink of water. I don't remember any of that. I didn't take any notes. I just listened to him. So for two and a half years, I represented him until the trials were over and the sentencing. Um, the defense probably cost 18 to 20 million dollars. I think the government spent 86 million. He ultimately was executed. At the time, he was called the most hated man in America. I don't know if that's true. It's certainly true in Oklahoma. It was then. So now, let me just tell you a little bit about his defense. The problem for the government was it was a circumstantial evidence case. And it was actually more difficult to convict Tim McVeigh than Terry Nichols, who was also indicted. Because Nichols had made a series of false statements, and he thought he was smarter than the FBI agents. His brother didn't make that mistake, which is why he was never indicted. And so it was easy to disprove his lies. In Tim McVeigh's case, he had made no statement. and. Um, we looked at the case, and probably the second day after I was appointed, I received a telephone call from a man named Ted Litz. Ted was the director then, and I think still, of the Federal Defender Service, part of the administrative office of the United States Courts. He introduced himself, and uh, he said, do you mind if I give you piece of advice. And I said, please. He said, well, right now, this week, you are the second most influential lawyer, second most powerful lawyer in the United States. And he said, the reason for that is that they're so glad they found somebody to do this. 
And he said, you were David Russell's only choice, first choice. He waited to let everybody else play out who they wanted. He discussed you with the Chief Justice, and he said, I'm going to appoint Stephen Jones. So you were appointed. Now, what I want to tell you is that next week will be different. So whatever you want, get this week, because you won't get it next week. So I took his advice. So I had secretaries and other people in my office come in, and we typed up God knows how many requests for this and that and one thing and the other, and they just signed it. And, I mean, I never worked so hard to get those signatures. Whatever Newt Gingrich and the Republican leadership was doing in Washington, trying to cut the budget and shut down the government, I was undoing in Enid, Oklahoma. Um, but we put the team together. So as we looked at it, we broke it down into two segments, the legal and the factual. In the legal, we achieved all of our goals. And uh, I made a list of them. Uh, we um, secured the recusal of all of the Oklahoma City judges. We got a change of venue from Oklahoma City to the District of Colorado. We obtained adequate financing for the defense. We most importantly got a severance of the trial from Terry Nichols. We got uh, the court order precluding certain statements made by Terry Nichols from being used against Tim McVeigh in either a joint or separate trial. We secured adequate time to prepare for the defense, and we obtained comprehensive pretrial discovery. And I had the pleasure of listening to so-called legal experts and talking heads on various television shows saying we wouldn't get any of that, and we got every one of them. In addition, we got a wonderful trial judge, Richard Mage. On that, we were successful. On the defense, this is the way I looked at it. We organized eight, I'm sorry, six teams, lawyers on each team. I was the lead defense lawyer. I was appointed by the court. Everyone else was appointed on my motion. I chose Bob Nye Jr. to be the second in command because I knew him and he had worked for him. So he was the deputy defense counsel. Team one was the team that was to prepare for the guilt-innocence stage. Team two was to prepare for the second stage if Mr. McVeigh was convicted which is the punishment or sentencing stage. Team three was the evidence control, recording, receipt, examination, and analysis of FBI laboratory reports. Team four was management and administration. Team five was legal counsel to the defense, people that advised us about the law. And team six was litigation support. And to prepare for the government's case, I told my colleagues, and they agreed with me, that the government's case against Tim McVeigh was like a table. And the table had six legs. And I described those six legs as being one, where Tim McVeigh, when he was arrested, where he was. Number two, the contents of Tim McVeigh's political writings and political opinions, most of which were in the car. Three, the Dale Bridges debit long-distance telephone card, which we knew the government would use. Four, the eyewitness identification. 
Five, the FBI forensic laboratory conclusions. And six, the testimony of Michael and Lori Fortier. So now, if we knock one of those legs off, the, the table will still stand. And probably even if we knocked off two legs, the table will still stand. If we are able to knock off three, then the table's gonna wobble. And if we can knock off four, the table will collapse. So you want to avoid the death penalty? The best way to avoid the death penalty is he's not convicted of murder. Well, <clears throat> in analyzing those six legs, obviously we couldn't challenge where he was when he was arrested, and obviously we couldn't challenge his political writings. We could explain them, we could offer an alternative explanation, but those facts were given. The Darrell Bridges debit card was sort of like that, although there were some wrinkles. But everything else was fair game. <clears throat> um, about two months before the trial started, the media began to wake up, I think, to the realization or the belief, possible belief, that this was not going to be a turkey shoot for the government that this was serious business. The um, Telegraph, the London Telegraph, wrote a front page article about the McVeigh defense. The National Law Journal wrote a front page story, a McVeigh acquittal coming, question mark. And there were other reports. Even Rick Serrano who covered the trial for the LA Times and who wrote one of the good books on the trial called One of Ours began the chapter on the trial when he said two months before the trial, Stephen Jones held a hot hand. I think the government was on the run. There are lots of ways I could see that. First of all, there were 2,500 press credentials, and on the night the trial started, there were 25 mobile TV vans outside the courthouse, so it attracted worldwide attention. What happened, though, was a man that I had known for 20 years or longer betrayed me. A man that I had entrusted my professional career to, paid a lot of money, and uh, certainly valued his friendship, was corrupted and compromised by the Dallas Morning News. And he gave the Dallas Morning News access to our computer database, and the Dallas Morning News got roughly a million pages of documents, and they took several months secretly and surreptitiously went through those documents and then found the blockbusters and called me um, on a Friday afternoon and uh, the conversation was tape recorded by myself. All calls to me were tape recorded. Um, and told me they were getting ready to run a story that they had um, legitimately, which was false, obtained defense documents. And they had found one where Tim McVeigh allegedly had confessed to his lawyers. I asked to speak to the editor. Um, the editor came on. He backed them up. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to see Judge Mitch, which was my mistake because what they did immediately was put it on the internet before I could get on the elevator. It was all over. I mean, 
and at breaking news, as they say on CNN. Then a colleague of this individual had given other defense documents to a reporter for Reuters who sold them to Playboy and ABC News for $25,000, and Prime Time ran a story. There was no way to recover from that, no legitimate way to recover. So we had to wait for the government to make a mistake or the jury to make a mistake. I thought they did make a mistake. Uh, Judge Mage, um, he wasn't going to declare a mistrial, and the Tenth Circuit upheld him. So Mr. McVeigh was convicted and given the death sentence. Our relationship deteriorated towards the end, and not for any of the reasons that Tim McVeigh said or ascribed, because actually we had a very good working relationship. Where it came to an end probably was in a conversation in which I confronted him and I told him that not only did I know that he had lied to us, I knew what the lies were. And I proceeded to tell him. And I said, you're covering for others. You're taking it all on yourself. You're the mastermind and you're covering for the others so they will not be prosecuted. And from that point on, our relationship began to go south. And even the book American Terrorist, which Tim took upon himself, the vilification and the hate of everyone who lost somebody in it, was a clever move because it focused all the attention on him and not to anybody else. And in our last conversation, I told him, I said, Tim, I need to tell you something, partner. You need to keep quiet. And I, um, I read to him what General de Gaulle once said, pulled out the book, said, uh, you're a soldier, so you will appreciate this. Um, General de Gaulle wrote, Nothing enhances authority more than silence. It is the modesty of the proud, the prudence of the wise, and the sense of fools. A man who is experiencing anxiety will try to come to terms with his terror by externalizing them in words. When what is required is silence to order one's thoughts, one calls troops to attention before telling them what is expected. Mr. McVeigh said, <clears throat> in layman's terms, what does that mean? I said, in layman's terms, it means shut the fuck up. <laughs> I said, don't say anything. Leave it a mystery, because if you go public and you try to exculpate the others or attack me, which he said he'd do, I got to tell you that you're waiving the protection of confidentiality, and I will answer. That fell on deaf ears. I hadn't been out of the case two months before he was already waiving the attorney-client privilege in the Tenth Circuit, entered a show cause order on why he hadn't waived the attorney-client privilege and rule confidentiality on certain documents. But that's what Tim did. He did it without his successive lawyers even knowing it. They read about it in the newspaper, or radio, television, same time I heard. 